A polar plunge, a smooth skate, and a musical montage. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Thursday, February 8th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we check in with the Rapid City Police Department ahead of a fundraiser for Special Olympics. Lee Strubinger provides context for the debate over interstate commerce regulations with the South Dakota bankers. The Augustana men's hockey coach joins us as the Vikings chase a home rink win at the new Midco Arena. Plus, an award-winning educator helping people of all ages and abilities find musical expression and an academy that invites young composers to create their first masterpiece. Those stories are coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, we are going to kick off today's show with an update from the Rapid City Police Department, including why some officers will make a very chilly splash this weekend. Don Hedrick is chief of police, and he is seated now in SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City. Chief Hedrick, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So this partnership with Special Olympics is a longstanding law enforcement tradition. For people who are new to it, tell us a little bit about the Polar Plunge this weekend. Yeah, thank you. And you're right. Uh, Law enforcement has been working with the Special Olympics for many years. Uh, Back in the 80s, we uh, actually started the uh, Law Enforcement Torch Run program for Special Olympics, which was a program to bring awareness to the to uh, Special Olympics, but also uh, in the 90s, we here locally started up the Polar Plunge, which is another way for law enforcement to bring awareness to uh, the program there and to raise funds for uh, a really good cause. Is it for the community? Is it for officers in the departments? Tell me a little bit about who's invited to participate and what you'll be doing that day. There will be many uh, community uh uh, folks here that'll be engaged in the in the the jump itself. Um, it's not specific to law enforcement, and there are ways if, to either sign up as a to jump, or um, you know businesses and corporations can do the same. Um, however, there will be a special emphasis. Uh, we have team public safety, which is made up of local area first responders, um, and there's a little friendly competition between us and the the canines of our organizations. So <laughs> you can designate, you know, who you would want to, funds to go towards, towards team public safety or to the canines. Um, you know, when they told me we were going to be competing against the dogs, I, I knew I was going to be jumping in the cold water. Yeah, you, you know. <laughs> it's going to be right. hard to beat the dogs. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, talk a little bit about um, trends that you're seeing that you think are important regarding public safety, and then we'll get into a little bit of why these kind of community events matter. But first, what are you seeing in, in Rapid City in the area that you would want listeners to know our public safety concerns or trends. Yeah, thank you. You know, over the last couple of years, it's been uh, a wild ride for law enforcement. Uh, we've witnessed some record high levels of violence, um, not only here locally, but in the entire nation. And unfortunately, here in Rapid City, uh, we, we followed that trend. Um, I am excited to report, though, however, um, over 2022 and 2023, our, our violence levels have decreased. 
And there's probably a lot of factors that go into that, but one of which, uh, something that we could control was uh, shifting the way that we do business. And it's something we really haven't had to do before, but uh, really just putting a lot of our resources in the high crime area, uh, one with traditional policing, but two, um, building trust building initiatives in the, in the neighborhoods as well. So kind of a, a two-pronged approach. Um, and we've found that, you know, you can go in and, and make a bunch of arrests and pull people over and such, um, but you also need to, to make that time for engagement to figure out what the folks living there, what's important to them. Um, make them comfortable to make that phone call, uh, to call something in when they see it. Um, so that, that's sort of been a, an initiative over the last couple of years that we've spent a lot of time and energy and resources working to address. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to say things are trending in the right direction. We certainly can't normalize uh, violence in our communities, especially in South Dakota. How do um, you um, lead the culture of a department? Because it is a high-risk job. It is difficult to recruit and retain officers. Um, there is a great deal of, of support for law enforcement in South Dakota, but also a great deal of scrutiny for this profession nationwide. One bad day where an officer does something that they shouldn't have done um, has a long tail of consequences in people's lives and also in public opinion. So if you're you know, gathering a shift and you're talking to them before they go out on the streets, what are the kinds of things that you're saying to them that help them embrace the job that they have and really the culture that you want to see in the Rapid City PD? Uh, you're, you're so right on a lot of levels. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's very simple. Um, you know, it goes back to the golden rule and treating others how you'd wish to be treated. You know, what if, what if that call you're responding to uh, was a family member of yours? How would you want that officer to treat your family if, in, in their time of need? And uh, remembering that every single interaction that you have, uh, you have the ability to impact uh, how people think, not not just about you, but about the the whole department and law enforcement in general. Uh, you have a lot of um, ability to have influence there. And if if you think about it, um, you know, if there was ever a time maybe you encountered a police officer, maybe you got pulled over, you know, whatever the case might be, mm -hmm. I'm guessing you remember that situation very, very clearly. It's very vivid in your mind. And, you know, try to bring officers back to that moment to recognize that, most people that they're encountering um, are not running into law enforcement on a daily basis, so it's a it's a big deal in their world. And you know, don't let it just be another call for service. Um, leave leave every chance an opportunity to to impact folks in a positive way. And I'm glad you mentioned the retention issue. That's something we saw here as well. About a year ago, we were looking to hire about 36 officers. Um, now we're looking to hire about eight, and uh, we spent a lot of time trying to invest in wellness programming to make sure that our folks had the resources they need to, to keep them here, but to also keep them um, healthy and happy, and that leads to uh, better engagements with the public. Yeah. Um, also throughout the state today, people are mourning an officer in South Dakota who was killed in the line of duty, which doesn't happen very often, and just... By way of, you know, hesitation, there's always lots of things that need to be unpacked over what happens on a certain call and how everything will be investigated in the future. But for now, it's the time to mourn. Tell me a little bit about the conversations, again, that you have with your officers about the risks of the job. Yeah, thank you. You know, I, I think everybody knows going into it that there's uh, an element of risk. 
um, you know, we, we do everything that we can to train and prepare and to take the steps necessary to make sure folks are safe. Uh, but th there is always that element of, of danger that exists out there. And, you know, you're right, incredibly uh, tough day, um, tough couple weeks here in South Dakota as we mourn the loss of a, a first responder. And, uh, you know, I didn't know him personally, but I've heard stories about his impact in the community. Mm. And, uh, you know, I know that the state's mourning. Yeah. Um, we will leave it there with um, our thoughts for that community and, and the family. And uh, we've been having some really great conversations with the Sioux Falls Chief of Police over time. So Chief Hedrick, um, as we talk about the multi-layers of policing in South Dakota, we'd love to have you back to talk about specific initiatives and um, the culture of your department. So hopefully you'll be willing to join us in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me and let me know when I can come back. All right. We'll see you then. Thanks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> State lawmakers are resurrecting updates to the Uniform Commercial Code. That's a law most every state in the country passes to help facilitate commerce. Governor Kristi Noem vetoed the updates last year. At the time, she expressed concerns that the bill would have disadvantaged cryptocurrency and established federally-backed digital currency. The new commercial code updates, alongside another bill, make it explicit the state will not accept these currencies. This version has already passed the House of Representatives and will be heard in the Senate. To help us understand all this, SDPB's Lee Strubinger caught up with Carl Adam about how this bill is different. Adam is president of the South Dakota Bankers Association. Here's their conversation. What is different about this bill as opposed to last year's? Well, Lee, um, there isn't a great deal different. Uh, I, I do believe that um, <clears throat> lawmakers and um, the public have had an opportunity in a year to think about um, what we're trying to advance and for the betterment of South Dakotans so that we're not disadvantaged when it comes to uh, interstate commerce, which is very important, the legal framework when we uh, transact businesses uh, for services and or goods. So I think that uh, the pause button was uh, obviously necessary last year, um, but we think that we're in a good spot this year to uh, advance this measure. It seems like the main crux of it is that we kind of live more in an electronic world and this kind of reflects the type of uh, transactions and contracts that we might uh, sort of enter into in this digital age that that we live in, and that the commercial code sort of reflects that. Am I? Am I? Is that? That's a broad stroke, but am I getting the? Yeah, the gist? I, I think you're uh, you dialed in uh, very accurately on that. So, you know, uh, this is an update to reflect revisions and updates for digital assets. Um, to your point, um, my wife and I have been fortunate to raise five five relatively well-adjusted uh, young people. And the way they transact business is far different than the way I transacted business when I was their age because they have been raised in a more electronic world. So using that as a basic example, but that's also the reason that this uniformity is important, that we are updating the code to reflect certain changes uh, in the way we do business. So um, I, I welcome it. And I think that uh, as South Dakotans, we should embrace it because it will keep us at at least a level playing field for transacting business, not only in our state, but across state lines. 
How will this update affect South Dakota's banking industry? Well, let me just pick on one point as an example, something that we hadn't talked a great deal about uh, as it relates to these updates, but you know, uh, in banking, even in just the last number of years, um, electronic signatures or electronic uh, execution of loan documents has become more and more prevalent. Uh, a lot of it was kind of kicked into high gear as a result of the pandemic when a lot of our community banks lobbies were closed. There was a lot of paycheck protection program loans being done uh, that many of us will recall. And as a result of that, you have to sign a loan document, but our lobby was closed. And so what we were doing is we were doing electronic signatures. Um, and that really required um, a lot of coordination with the, the borrower, the banker, and so forth. Well, fast forward, the UCC does not contemplate electronic signatures. It only contemplates wet signatures because what banks will do is they'll pull, pull their loans and oftentimes sell those to uh, secondary markets and then they retain their capital and redeploy those funds in their market. So the important, one of the important port points of this uh, update is now we'll contemplate electronic signatures. So these bankers will have the ability to sell these, pool these loans and sell them to secondary market, be able to retain those monies back to their market and redeploy them. So that is a big win right there. Has that been something that's sort of, I guess, when we talk about uh, sort of, when we, when we talk about that, has, it, has that been something that has been, I guess, in the way of, of banks being able to do that? Have they, have they had to, I guess, go and, and, and get those wet signatures in order to even like make that happen? Yes, it, and, and again, I, I really think in the last five years, um, electronic signatures and just the advancement of technology. I mean, the amount of, uh, the number of times that I've probably electronically signed a document has been the most in the last two years of my entire life. And so I think it, it was just the right time for us and the courts were not accepting of electronic signatures when disputes arise. So now they will contemplate this and it is, it is uh, well laid out in the Uniform Commercial Code. You're listening to In The Moment. I'm speaking with Carl Adam. He's president of the South Dakota Bankers Association. The bill prior to the UCC updates um, talked a lot about sort of requiring uh, businesses and entities to accept, if they accept uh, these kind of federalized digital currencies, um, that they would also, they, they're also required to accept other forms of cash. And it also prevents the state from accepting that form of cash. How does that affect uh, kind of banks here in the state, what I guess, what kind of message does that does that send? Well, yes, uh, House Bill 1161 was a, a bill that was initiated by the South Dakota Bankers Association, and it was something that we took uh, away from last year in our discussions with many of the members. Um, the concern was in the definition of money; it, it mentioned electronic money, which then is uh, equivalent to a central bank digital currency. And there are a couple of countries in the, in the world that have adopted a central bank digital currency. One being the Bahamas has the uh, sand dollar, one being the Marshall Islands has the sovereign. And so by identifying this in a global economy, it's important that um, <clears throat> South Dakota wanted to not be able to accept a central bank digital currency as a form of payment by the state of South Dakota. And we heard that last year, so we believe that that is a, a measure that we were worth, uh, were willing to, to accept and put forth this legislation. Keep in mind, a central bank digital currency would circumvent the traditional banking system. 
So as a banking industry, we have the most vibrant economic system in the world with you know, uh, the Federal Reserve with, you know, 4,800 banks from large banks, large uh, behemoth banks to our single location, smaller banks that all have a very vital place in the ecosystem. So we didn't want a central bank digital currency in our country. It's not been contemplated. Uh, I know it's being discussed, but that isn't something that we can do here in South Dakota. That is an action of Congress. So 1161 prohibits that. Uh, but if an individual or a business person wanted to accept a central bank digital currency as a form of payment, um, they would also have to uh, provide an alternative payment source as well. So we feel that this kind of hits the mark uh, of our lawmakers, what we're hearing from our public, and uh, we're glad to advance that as well. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, the puck has dropped for Augustana University men's hockey with the first season underway. The Vikings are breaking in the ice at the new Midco Arena now. Garrett Raboyne is... Raboyne? Did I get it? Yes, close All right. enough. Is, uh, no, not close enough. What is it? <laughs> Raboyne. Raboyne. Okay, thank you. Is inaugural head coach of the Vikings men's hockey program, and he's with us in the Kirby family studio now. Hey, coach, welcome. Thanks for having me. Having a little bit of a hard time just controlling my excitement over Augie hockey. So there's your disclaimer for listeners because I'm an Augie grad <laughs> and I, I kind of like hockey. So this is a big deal that this is here. Um, it's kind of exciting for the community. Tell us a little bit about where you're at because you're building a foundation um, for the future, you had to wait to get in the new arena. You have to build a roster. You have to build a program. You have to communicate to people what hockey is and and how it works. So, give me a little bit about your journey in this as you launch this new venture. Yeah, well, it's a really cool opportunity for for me and our athletes. And uh, there was a great plan in place long before I arrived to to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, but since arriving, I spent a year just recruiting players. Uh, we found 27 athletes uh, from seniors, fifth-year grads, all the way down to freshmen, um, and we brought them all to town. We have eight U.S. states. We have every Canadian province. We have one Finn and one Swede. So really, we, we got them from all over and brought them to town. Um, we uh, knew that uh, the people we're building this program with uh, for as we start our foundation was paramount, and, and we felt like we got a really good group, uh, kids that value academics. Um, they believe in our program. They believed in me, uh, and they shared a vision for, for the future and how we're going to get there. Um, and, and we're off and running. We, we actually are in the back half of our season. We only have 10 games remaining, um, and, and we practice out of the Iceplex, uh, which was awesome. We were able to play at the Denny Sanford Center as a temporary home, uh, but we were all anticipating and excited about Midco Arena opening. And we have two games under our belt. Uh, Friday we'll play our third home game at Midco. Um, what a cool thing for our guys. Uh, and the excitement of the community, uh, it just continues to build. And now that we're in that facility, to, to share it with uh, over 3,000 fans and supporters of, of Augustana Sioux Falls and, and the state of South Dakota, really, um, it, it's been an awesome start and we're looking forward to the future. Yeah. How are the athletes holding up with the, you know, the changes, the transitions, the new season, the expectations? I think they're, they're game for a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, and, and they knew that, 
there was going to be challenges. Um, that's really important when you're growing because uh, there will be pitfalls, but we ask our guys to just show up for it and learn from it. Um, we've had some great moments, uh, and, and there's so much excitement, and there's so much to be encouraged about as we move forward. Um, and, and these ambassadors for Augustana Hockey, uh, we're really fortunate to have them. Uh, some of them are going to be leaving our program, and we welcome in a new group. Uh, but what a cool thing. A year in, we'll have alumni. We think they'll have a great experience. We have some mm-hmm. having conversations about uh, living in Sioux Falls. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really all of it uh, that, that we're fortunate to be a part of and, and, and just excited about. So tell me a little bit. You had a big loss followed by a, a comeback win in, is it Bemidji? Yeah. In Bemidji. And you, you have to talk to the team then about the loss and then come back and do better the next day, and they do. What did you say? Uh, I mean, we just simply asked our guys to to come out with a better energy. Uh, we, we felt they owed it to themselves. Um, we felt they owed it to the, the fan base, obviously, and, and the other league members. We are the ninth member of an eighth-team league. Uh, it's our first year, and, and we've kind of set out to make a good first impression on, on everyone we're going to play with in the league. It was our first time playing Bemidji. We didn't mm-hmm. feel like they saw near our best. Um, so we just challenged our guys to, to respond and put a better foot forward. Um, I'm not a big yeller. It was a conversation. <laughs> um, and our leaders, our leaders showed up, and they set the tone right from the start. Our young guys followed, um, and it was just a great night for our team and, and something to build on. Um, no playoffs. Explain to us how this works from uh, moving to a playoff or moving to full membership. I don't, I don't really understand how yeah, that works at all. Yeah, there's a two-year entry into the CCHA. So we'll play every uh, league member, the other eight teams, we'll play them at their rink for a series, and okay. they'll all play in Sioux Falls for a series. That's how we're going to spend the first two years. Uh, there aren't really any league points awarded, um, and we aren't going to be uh, participating in the league playoff. Uh, the exciting part about about where we're at, though, is we are able to make the NCAA tournament uh, through the pairwise. Now, we don't have enough time on the show to talk right. about what the pairwise means, uh, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. If we have a, a successful enough season, uh, we could earn an at-large bid and play in the national tournament, which is ultimately what everybody wants in college hockey is just a shot uh, at the dance. Yeah. Back to that arena. Um, how do you like it? Student section, how the crowd responds, how the ice responds. What do you think? No. I mean, it, the best part is it's ours. It's home. Um, we had blueprints, then we had tag boards, then we had a fly-through video. Uh, none of it really did it any justice, uh, when you're able to walk through it, put your hands on it, uh, the energy that's there on game day, uh, it's small enough where you can see faces of fans, uh, some of which are now friends having moved my family to this community for right around two years. Um, uh, student section, absolutely electric, um, it, they, they had a great plan, such a bold vision. They executed at a very high level, um, and now we're all reaping the rewards. Yeah. Um, some, what, 15 students on the all-academic team? Tell me a little bit about, again, that's a, that seems like a good turnout to me. I don't yeah, know what you're that's, hoping that's for, but uh, that's, talk about the importance of academics in college athletics. Uh, it's, yeah. it's critically important. Academics is our gateway to the ice, and that is what our guys need to do first and foremost. Um, yes, they aspire to be professional hockey players, a lot of these uh, young men, but uh, hockey does come to end, and end for everyone. 
um, and they're going to have to fall back on their education, their degree. Um, our guys were drawn to Augustana because of its academic reputation. Um, it's very important to these kids. They put a lot of work into it. Um, I think it speaks what a change for Augustana to, to bring a new sport, but 27 athletes to a small campus. Um, and our, our faculty have been tremendous. Our administration's outstanding um, and have really set our guys up for success. Um, and you see it with the 15 uh, all CCHA uh, scholars. Yeah, building for the future um, from, I mean, I, I think Augustana in general can bring a lot of international students. They always, at least when I was there, there were a lot of international students, especially from Norway and Sweden and places like that that I studied alongside. We're also looking for those South Dakota kids who want to play hockey. Now they have a chance to come to Sioux Falls and be close to home. Where do you see the future athletes for this program coming from? Well, I think we have a great footprint right here in the Midwest. Um, I have three young kids all in, in the Sioux Falls Flyers program. Um, there's right around 800 youth hockey players. So we're doing everything we can to give ourselves a chance to one day cultivate and develop our own talent. And, and I can't wait until a player from South Dakota joins us uh, as we try to hang banners from Midco Arena. Um, I can't tell you when that'll be, but I sure am excited for it. I think the energy and excitement around hockey, not only in Sioux Falls, but the state of South Dakota, uh, is something that continues to grow. We had our first uh, NHL player in Walker Dewar, uh, first South Dakotan. Uh, he played for the Calgary Flames both last year and this year. Uh, so there, there's, we're trending in the right direction, um, and, and we will. We'll continue to add European players, especially Scandinavians. Uh, they just fit our campus, uh, as you know. Uh, it, the heritage. Because of, of the sweaters. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and they serve meatballs and mashed potatoes at Midco Arena. So um, there is a Scandinavian flair, and we, uh. have, we have the two Europeans now, and they're doing extremely well. All right, I want to do. I do want to mention the 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 history of hockey and concussions and the health of your athletes, um, athlete safety. You said everybody's you know hockey career comes to an end at at some point. We want it to come in to an end in a way where they're healthy and ready to be a part of a family and a part of a community. How has hockey changed, and uh, what kind of precautions are you taking to make sure that um, these athletes are cared for? Well, I think the big thing of where we're at and where we're going is we are being proactive and we are having conversations. Uh, not too long ago, you know, you, you, you bumped your head, okay, you tough it out, okay, you're a little dizzy, you shake it off. Um, I think we're understanding that there are long-term uh, repercussions and consequences um, through the technology of helmets, uh, through different rules uh, in how the game is played. We're trying to eliminate some of these dangerous plays that put kids in really tough situations. Um, does it still happen because it's a fast sport that's unpredictable? It is a contact sport, um, but we all uh, and it's it's becoming more and more of a thing. We're all very aware um, and cautious. The return to play protocol is something that we uh, respect and understand, and, and and sports medicine continues to evolve. Um, hopefully, there's a day that we don't see it at all. Mm. Um, all I can say for right now is we're moving in a positive direction. All right. Speaking of positive directions, the Vikings play St. Thomas Friday, Saturday at Midco Arena in Sioux Falls. I was checking out the website um, this week to check out those tickets. I'm hearing really good things. 
and I did not know there were meatballs in. <laughs> so you have the, to get the over food there. Food is apparently <laughs> a thing there. I didn't. No one had told me that. All right, Coach. Thank you so much for being here with us. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for the gift of advocacy, service, and giving. Don Loudner grew up in Fort Thompson. He's a member of the Crow Creek Tribe and served 42 years in the U.S. Army. Since retiring, Don continues to be a tireless advocate for American Indian veterans. Now, at age 93, he spoke with Larry Rohr for an upcoming feature on Dakota Life. He tells of the tradition of gift giving and how after giving a speech to a veterans group, that tradition meant passing along a special gift he had received. Take a listen. Uh, the chairman of the Navajo Nation, he uh, made me a bolo tie. A lot of uh, turquoise and, and silver. Oh, beautiful ones. And uh, I made a mistake when I, they asked me to, to speak at the, at the banquet for us. And uh, so I got up and I spoke and everything. And we got done, but then there was all the generals got up and came in line and give me hugs. And again, that because I was a veteran, we had vets. Some wasn't very bad, but they all hugged them and everything. And made them really feel, feel happy about being there then. We got done, but then this guy said, God, he said, what a beautiful tie you got on. I said, well, you mean by what tie? He said, the one you got on. That's this one, yeah. That one, my, 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 my tie that the chairman of the Navajo Nation gave me. But I, I, I gave it to the head, head general. So he just took it off and he, told, he, told, he said, here, throw this cloth one. He said, I'm putting this on. <laughs> Why was it important to give that tie away? Indians have different ways. Like, I still do that when I eat at, when when I go down to a cafe or something, I, I order make a, if it's breakfast, I take a part of the egg and the sausage or bacon or whatever, and I put it in and push it off to the side. And then when I get done, and I, I leave that there, and have a little short prayer to God that these are given to me, to to, to my ancestors that died before me, people mm. say, well, why do you leave food? Don't you like it or no? And I said, no, this is a tradition that they give. That's Don Loudner, a member of the Crow Creek Tribe. For the past 20 years, he's represented more than 500 recognized tribes in the U.S. in seeking a charter for Native American veterans to be recognized and work directly with the Veterans Administration. With the help of U.S. Senator Mike Rounds, that charter was approved a few weeks ago. Loudner will be featured in the next episode of Dakota Life, Greetings from Fort Thompson, and that premieres tonight at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on SDPB-TV Channel 1. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, a music educator of note and some advice from young composers about how to believe in your ideas and what it's like to hear them in the world. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Yamaha started the 40 Under 40 Music Educators Recognition Program to spotlight educators of note. And this year, that spotlight illuminates one of our own in the Black Hills. Mallory Decker is executive director of the Black Hills Studios of the Arts and one of the inductees into Yamaha's 40 Under 40 class of 2024. And she's with us now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital in Rapid City. Mallory Decker, welcome. Thank you. And congratulations on this honor. It's pretty exciting. It is. It's super awesome. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing to really open the door for people of all ages, all abilities to embrace music learning. Well, this all started when I had a student who happened to have Down syndrome come into my office and she really wanted to play clarinet Mm -hmm. and was very excited about it, but had very little capability to do so because her band teacher, who is in the Rapid City Area School District, who is phenomenal, you know, she tried to do some stuff, but there just isn't a lot of time in the school system. So that's why they walked into my door and sat down and talked with her and got to know her, talked to some of her doctors and therapists, reached out to other people that I knew, and I was like, we could so do this. <laughs> so we started talking and basically built a whole coding system just for her and it's phenomenal because she can sit down and can pretty much read music all by herself and without very little assistance so as long as somebody codes her music for her she can she can do it and it's it's (laughs) awesome and then the next student comes in and you have to code it for a whole different uh sort of (laughs) cognitive process it's highly yes it yeah how individualized is that is what i'm wondering yeah Oh, it's so it's so different. So yeah. we've actually had other students come in, uh, one one more with Down syndrome, and it was completely different. And they're with even though Down syndrome is a very specific thing, it just does very different things, yeah. and they still look at things differently. And so we have to really take the individual in their own stride and and with how their brain is working and with what they really focus on, and then build something off of that. So super gratifying, I'm guessing, especially when this first student like joins marching band. And yes. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the impact of this for a lifetime, especially when you can reach a student in that middle school or high school area who maybe had some obstacles to musical performance. What's the impact of that long term potentially? Well, she loves music, and she was in my office again yesterday, mm-hmm. and you know, it always starts with "Best Mallory Ever," and it's just like, <laughs> "I love you." <laughs> uh, but it's just like, okay, here we go. So, what are we gonna do today? And she's like, "Well, I'm gonna play band. I love band." And I'm like, "Yeah, you do. I know you do." Okay, well, what are we gonna do today? And she's just like, "I, I need to do scales." She always, always starts with scales. That's her mm-hmm. thing. That's her jam. And then we go off into something else. And by the end of the lesson, she's decided on another instrument that she wants to learn so so far on our list after graduation she is going to do saxophone ukulele and trumpet so you know we're we're gonna be together for a long time scales were my jam too there's a (laughs) there's i mean most people like most students hate scales right but that was always the thing it's true there's a a structure and a repetition and a mastery in scales that i always found very soothing when i was a playing high school band. Um, You also reach out to people, you know, who are elderly, people who wanted to learn something and just never did. What do you think music brings to our lives, not just as 
consumers or audience members, but as potentially performers, but certainly students. Well, it's so personal. And and that's why music is, is such a big deal to so many of us is because it reaches us on an emotional level that not everybody, or not everything, I should say, not everything can can fulfill. Mm-hmm. And music is a lifelong sport. And, and I do say sport because your body is doing so many fabulous things that it really is, can be a workout. Uh, yeah. But whether you're playing in your mute or in your living room just by yourself, you know, just for yourself, you know, you don't have to go out and you don't have to play with anybody. You don't have to be in an ensemble because it's just for you. It's, it's all about what you need and what you need to express in a situation that is just all you. Yeah. I love that. All right. Mallory Decker, 40 under 40 music educators in 15 seconds. What's next for you? continue (laughs) we're (laughs) trying to grow the studios we have a music education outreach program that reads into the private schools and we're just trying to build and get music everywhere to everybody yeah best mallory ever thanks so much for joining (laughs) us today and congratulations no thank you What you're hearing now is a montage of music written by South Dakota teenagers as part of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra's Music Composition Academy. SDPB premieres every single note tonight on SDPB TV, and producer Kevin Patton is with me now for a behind-the-scenes look at the story. Hey, welcome. Thank you so much, Lori. Thanks for having me. You've been following the Lakota Music Project, the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, and this Music Composition Academy for quite some time. So tell me, where all has this story taken you? (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra for many years now, whether it be broadcasting concerts or or streaming concerts. And this uh, latest project with the Music Composition Academy has been a fun one to work on. Uh, Our first shoot was at Ulrich's school district in September of 22. And then in the summer of 2023, we went to the Sisseton-Wapiton College where they were having the camp. And also in July, we went to Black Hill State University where they had another round of the camp there. All right, we're going to hear a little bit from the composers now. Um, They come to this camp with all kinds of different musical ideas, and uh, you got some audio of them talking about what ideas they hoped to express. A fishing trip. Relationships. I'm going for a marching kind of feeling. I hope to convey change. Something you could put in a horror movie, like a chase scene, and something to get your blood flowing and stuff. It kind of resembles the wind in my piece. Something's not like how it seems or what it seems. You have a story and it's like you need to tell that story because there's other kids like you who probably don't know how to speak about how they're feeling. Kevin, tell me a little bit about the process as you come with SDPB cameras and microphones and they're trying to do this work, which for many of them is brand new in the first place. And then there's coaches in the room. 
what does it all look like behind the cameras? When we first got there, we made it clear to them that we wanted to capture what they were doing, and but we didn't want to get in the way either. And so we, we made it clear that if we ever were in the way, that they could just tell us and we would back off a little. But they uh, were very gracious and gave us lots of room to, uh, to capture what we wanted to capture. And we were able to get through the whole week of, you know, from the beginning to the end and capturing them as they're beginning to create these music pieces and at the end of the process when they when they first hear them on the computer. But um, it can be hard for adults trying to get kids in, make them comfortable, help them figure out to do something that they don't know how to do, but they're trying to coax them to get their ideas out. Did you notice anything from those coaches that they did to help these kids warm up and feel like they were in a comfortable place to just express what was on their mind and in their hearts? You know, the three coaches... I was amazed at how well they work with, with the kids. Anything that they do, any sounds that they make are, are acceptable. And uh, they really make them feel at ease. I would say that was the biggest thing. They make the kids feel at ease and allow them to be creative. Yeah, there's a lot of work that goes behind that. So we're going to hear a little bit now from those coaches. We have composer Theodore Whiprid, composer Mike Begay, maestro Delta David Geyer of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, and composer Jeffrey Paul. Um, Mike and Jeff and I go around and work each of us with several of the students getting their ideas down on paper and then into the notation software. Throughout this process every note is decided by the students. The, the composition teachers don't write a single note. Every single note of music is, comes out of the kids. So all of the music is, is very much their own and we just sort of like you know help them write it down. Ted and Mike and I, we each bring um, laptops with um, either Finale or Sibelius, some kind of music notation software. Our Thursday nights at the camps are usually like all-nighters because we are fiendishly inputting and inputting and inputting all of the prolific students' works that have happened during the course of the week um, and trying to sift through our notes. We've probably been scratching things down on on um, manuscript paper and, and things like that. Kevin, you mentioned there's this first time that the student gets to actually hear their composition played live. They hear it first in, in a you know, computer recording. The computer is going to play back what they input into it. But then also they bring these musicians from the symphony and they play it for the composer, for the kid the first time. What was it like being in the room for some of those moments? You know, it's, it's really an amazing moment to see the kids the first time they, they hear their music pieces being played by professional musicians. As it says in the documentary, they're kind of amazed and awestruck, and it's really a neat moment when they first hear the, the music being played by the musicians. It's such an organic sound, you know, it's such a live sound. And I think for a lot of the students, they, they may have never heard professional musicians in a live room. Here's uh, Ted Whiprit talking about that first exchange between symphony musicians and composers. There's nothing quite like the look on the face of a student composer at the first rehearsal of their piece when they hear live musicians creating that human warm sound that expresses the ideas that that kid got down on paper. It's one thing to hear it on the computer, but when they, they hear the live musicians play it through the first time, I can't describe the, 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 the light that goes on on their face, the, the way their jaw drops, and they realize this is me 
through them, this miracle of live performance. The next thing is when the musicians then finish their performance, the kid is breathless, the musicians ask, so what about bar four? Did you want that more detached or more slurred? And the young composer realizes that they're the boss. It's like the grown-ups are turning to them for advice. They're the leaders, they're the future, they're the ones we want to hear from. How are the pieces finally presented to audiences? So the symphony musicians are on the stage, and usually Jeffrey Paul, one of the coaches, will emcee the program, and he will uh, introduce the students before their compositions are played. He usually has the student come up on stage and talk a little bit about their mm. composition. Then the, the piece is played, and after a big round of applause, the students will come up and take a bow. And <laughs> the raucous applause yes. in some of these performances is pretty, is pretty fun. You captured that uh, in the documentary as well. We're going to just play a little more tape from um, Every Single Note. Here are the Music Composition Academy coaches about the overall goals of the program because it's about so much more than that performance. I mean, yeah, the music is important, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's very important to allow them to express themselves uh, this way. But I think we're looking to, to give them validation as human beings, um, to, to celebrate who they are individually, to give them the attention that they are deserving of. I think it's giving them a voice is, is, is what's really important especially, you know, as a, young, as a young person, it's good to be heard and to express yourself, like I said, in a, in a very healthy way. Encouraging students' personal growth through creative opportunities is something very powerful for individual students and for our society to promote individual creativity as a value that can go into any area of life or occupation is essential to the development of young lives. All right, you spent a lot of time with these kids. Did they inspire you? You know, what did you take with you after watching their process? Yeah, you know, the students did inspire me. I was really inspired by the the three coaches and how they inspire the, the kids and the amazing work that they do and, and the amazing work that is done by the symphony to interact with the community of South Dakota. Yeah, it's about much more than the concert hall. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap up with uh, some advice from the young composers here, but Kevin Patton, thank you so much. Thank you, Lori. Never be afraid of your ideas. I say just like have fun and make something that you want to make, like something that you're proud of. How to be comfortable like making mistakes. I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned is that there are no mistakes in there, which is really nice. And to be accepting for yourself because there's no way to grow if you don't you know, learn from what you've done. When I listen to a song now, I can hear when something repeats or I can hear when there's a new piece or a high note and something like that. It really teaches you how to listen to music because before it was just, oh yeah, <laughs> goes high, goes low. <laughs> I think that's really what I learned the most. People actually enjoy the song. And it's like, hmm, maybe I should be a little more proud of myself for it because it's not every day a little 16-year-old gets to be on stage talking about their piece.
Every single note premieres tonight on SDPB TV One. That is at 8.30 Central and 7.30 Mountain Time. You'll be able to revisit it online if you choose at sdpb.org slash watch. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's In the Moment. Mike Thompson returns to the program. We will unpack today's arguments in front of the U.S. Supreme Court regarding Donald Trump's ballot eligibility in Colorado. That case is on the fast track and a quick decision is expected. We've got your Supreme Court analysis. Plus, we will revisit the Better Angels program at Dakota Wesleyan University in Mitchell. It's part of a plan to bring community members together for productive conversations about politics in a divided time. From all of us at SDPB, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening.